Gene Roddenberry said, It isn't all over. Everything has not been invented. The human adventure is just beginning. Today we talk about exactly how do people innovate and why it's good news for oil and gas. An industry under pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil and Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. Hey everybody, welcome back to another breathtaking episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. I've got a great topic today, i got a great guest. Before we get to that... Got to thank sponsor Cognite. I'll say a little bit more about them later, but it's great to have Cognite paying the bills, keeping the lights on. Also, today is review day. And you know, we always say that if you leave us a review, we will read it on the show. And so I got a couple to review today or to read. And keep that in mind that we do need those reviews so that we know whether you actually like what we're doing. And if you don't like it, then leave a bad review. That's fine. But just tell us what we need to be doing differently. Today, I got two reviews to share with the wide world of oil and gas tech. So the first one, this one's a little bit embarrassing to read, but this is the first one that I got that I received after having taken over the show from the from the great and famous Mark LaCour, who graciously handed this to me. So it was big, big footsteps to fill. And and this review says, great change, must listen. I really enjoyed Mark's hosting the show, but Michael O'Sullivan brings it to another level. His his ability to showcase The correlation between technology, people, and the business of oil and gas was much needed, easy to listen to, sometimes humorous, and always valuable. It's on my must-listen list. So the only thing I have to say about this is, Mom, I think we had this conversation. I've asked you. It's very embarrassing when you you go into this sort of thing. No, actually, it's not really. This was not from my mom. It sounds like it could have been from my mom, but it's actually from somebody named... Sarah US3DDH56, and I'm not going to try to say that again, but Sarah, whoever you are, thank you. She also mentioned that Cognite is the perfect partner and a vendor of hers, wherever it is that she works, and keep up the great work, Oil & Gas Global Network. The second one, the title of this review is Everything and More, which, you know, I think that pretty much sums it up. I don't know what else there is to say besides that. But it says, Michael is a great interviewer. He asks smart, interesting questions, but never seems like he's trying to look smart, obviously. The show always has great guests, covers a huge range of topics across ONG. And though I know the space pretty well, I always learn something new from each episode. My only complaint is a compliment in work clothes. I wish the show was longer. And I wish I had more people that told me I wish the show was longer. But so far, this is the only one. That one is from a guy named... David Kippen, and I'm going to suspect that this is the same David Kippen who owns a company called Aviva Branding out of out of the Bay Area in San Francisco. And it's a great branding agency, and David is a friend of the oil and gas business, and he does a lot of work here. He's a very busy guy, so I'm surprised that he actually has time to listen to this. But David, if you're out there, I do appreciate the good words there. So that does it for reviews. Now on to the guest today is somebody named Thor. He does have a last name. I'm just going to leave it out for a minute because <laughs> Thor, this is the first time I've had a god on the show. And, you know, being in the presence of a deity is it's a little bit intimidating. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. But <laughs> Thor, I'm sure you get those like hammer jokes and everything all the time. Right? I do have a so, hammer. Like every time you put your hand up in the air, somebody expects the hammer <laughs> to come. I'll leave it up there for a while, just waiting for fly it. And so Thor's last name is Schuler, and he is from a company called Avanad, which is reasonably famous, so it doesn't really need an introduction. So a little bit about you first. We did, we did when we were talking in advance, you, you mentioned that you've now been in the U.S. for a long time, even longer than you were in Germany, and you've been in the South for a long time. So, But it doesn't sound like you've been here that long. So what's the whole story of how did you end up from where you came from to here? So funny thing about accents, I think after after you reach a certain age, no matter where you go, you will not lose it. So yes, I'll be stuck with that accent for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm afraid. But yes, I actually grew up in, in Germany, in East Germany, as a matter of fact. I grew up behind the Iron Curtain before the Iron Curtain 
came down. Wow, okay. In fact, a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had just left the army and started college when when the war came down. So you're in the East German army. I was in the East German that's, army, so, yes. So that's more intimidating than Thor. I thought I thought that Thor was intimidating, but now you're you're in the So at some point in time we'll have some time, we'll have a beer and yeah. I have some I have some cool I stories. Can only, yeah. like this. Yeah. I was stationed literally twenty miles from the border to West Germany. Oh, wow. So yes, it was interesting to say the least. But because we were so close to the border, obviously the, the corollary was that we could get West German TV, West German radio. And when I grew up, I always wanted to They didn't to have like giant tinfoil walls in between to try to block the, the waves. No, <laughs> no. In fact, in fact, because the economic situation was so bad yeah. in East Germany, actually it was like at least having entertainment for free, coming in from West Germany was a good thing. It was a kind of calm. Yeah, I bet. Okay, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, something normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. But so growing up, I always wanted to be in the U.S. And so when I went to college, when I started college, I had the opportunity to go to Pittsburgh, go to Carnegie Mellon for a while and loved it over here, stayed over here. And then after I was finished with college, I went to New Orleans, of all places, and started working in technology there. And over time, my clients migrated from New Orleans to Houston and more and more, you know, yeah, moved sure, to Houston. Sure. And then so all of a sudden I find myself traveling a lot and then I bought a house in Houston. And so I kind of morphed into Houston more than I moved. Yeah. That, that whole yeah. period going from New Orleans to Houston took about 10 years. So let's so let's back up for a second. So you, you came from Germany, you heeded the call, go West young man, and you got here and you went to, in which part of the country did you go to school in? in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. Okay. So... Germany to Pittsburgh to New Orleans. You were really sort of shifting cultures there quite a lot. Oh, somewhat. Um, yeah. So in Houston and New Orleans, we talk a lot about whether we love each other, whether we hate each other, and whether we're the same or whether we're different. Some people would say we're basically the same, and other people say, no, we're, we are very... So So as, as somebody coming from someplace far away, what was your observation between New Orleans and, and Houston? Is it kind of the same thing, or are we different? There are more similarities, I think, than there are dissimilarities. Okay. Um, for so, sure. Yeah. You know, of course... Large part of New Orleans ended up in Houston. Yeah, that's for right, sure. With yeah, Katrina yeah, yeah, and, and the move of the oil industry. I Which did only good things for our restaurants and food. And hey, there like you that. go. Yeah, that's right. You've got to look at the bright side. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, so you came, so you're in Houston and you just kind of morphed into, and that's been for quite a few years, right? Yeah. So I've been, I've been working in oil and gas related activities since 1995. So it's been. Wow. Yeah, okay. it's been a so while. So you've seen. A couple of ups and downs. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And a couple of different economic, I mean, you know, shifts and changes and things like that. And I think, and so you, you've been with Avanade for a while now, but you worked with an assortment of companies. So what's your observation, you know, or maybe what I should say is a lot of people in the industry right now are, it's been a tough year, right? Mm -hmm. It was even tough. I mean, we weren't completely over the whole 14, 15 thing. We we're just starting to feel a little bit better. And then we got hit with this this year. So you've been around, you've seen a lot of stuff, you've come from other worse places. What are some like words of like to encourage people who are out there in the industry right now? And maybe particularly around the advances in technology and the new things that are happening. You know, so for those for those people out there who are like just ready to throw in the towel, what do you what do you usually say to those? Well, do not do not ever throw in the towel in the first place, but it is always darkest before sunrise. Yeah, that's, right? that's for sure. So I think that yes, this year was tough. There are we have some challenges in front of us in oil and gas particularly with the, with the global economic environment, with the political environment, you know, turning somewhat against oil and gas. It's challenging. But I think that the bottom line is that oil and gas is producing one of the commodities that, are, that is necessary for everyday life. I mean, when you think about that, it's not, it's not about driving your car, right? right? right. Oil is one of the commodities that is driving, you know, the entire chemical industry, plastics. Yeah. You know, Energy is part of it, but there's so much more to oil and gas than gas that goes in the car. Outerwear, right? let's not forget yeah. outerwear is <laughs> something yeah, that's absolutely. been in the news lately. Yeah, so right, no, that it's true, and you don't just you don't just pull the plug on all that. No, and look, there there are a lot of great people working in this industry, and I think we need to be proud to be doing what it is that we're doing. This is an essential industry that we're in. It's required for this country, and you know. Is the profile of the industry going to change? 
Yeah, absolutely. Sure. It has changed sure. over yeah. the last 20 years. It's going to change more over the next 20 years. Right. And, you know, if, if I've seen one thing in the oil and gas sector is, you know, there is an incredible capability to embrace change, embrace the new. And you see it with large companies like BP, like Chevron, looking at alternative energies entering and have been entering. Right. You know, these markets in those companies are going to be leaders in those markets, just like they're leaders today in the conventionals. Exactly. It's funny because, you know, I think about this frequently. If you want somebody to lead us toward some new form of energy that is going to be able to power the world, doesn't it make sense that the best people to do that would be the people who who gave us the first form of energy that powers the world. Like they've solved the problem once already. They can solve that problem. Yep. You know, again, those are like if you're a betting man, <laughs> those are the ones that are most likely to win the race, right? Those are the ones that are are, are the most likely to, to be successful. So that's good. That's good. But be proud of the, I think that's something that people are maybe forget sometimes is, you know, we especially with all of the, as you mentioned, not everybody is, is a fan and maintaining that pride is something that is, in the heritage of the industry. I mean, you go back and you look historically, I mean, you know, these were not, this, this industry was not built by people who were ashamed of what they do. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, I do find, you know, Avanade is a, is a global company. So prior to the pandemic, I got around quite a bit and I find it astounding. There's a lot of misinformation mm, about right. this industry. Right. You know, in many, many parts of society. Right. And so to whatever extent we can also educate our fellow citizens yeah. on all of the wonderful things that right. energy companies are doing, you know, involvement in the communities, right? You know, all programs. The stuff you know, is amazing. All, that's right. exactly yeah. right, yeah. and you know that stuff gets lost. Right, right. No, it does. It does. So good. All right, that's good stuff. Let's talk about what it is. I think our main topic today, what we want to discuss, is innovation, and not just like innovating a particular thing, but innovation itself sort of as a discipline and as a philosophy just so happens you're in charge of that at Avanon, but presumably you're in charge of it because it's something that you know something about so just in the abstract and innovation is one of those words that gets used a lot now right innovating 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 when you think just in the abstract when you think about innovation as something that people need to be able to do what is it what does that mean exactly what do you look for when we think about innovation at Avanon, we think about what's you know what makes a thing innovative. It's the human impact that we're looking for, right? Because at the end of anything that we do, there is or there ought to be a human. Because yeah. if there's not, then we have a problem. We ought to, right. we ought to wonder why we're doing what we're doing, right? Yeah, if there's no, no for sure. somewhere yeah. along at the end of the valuation, there's a human. So to what extent is what we're doing going to make the life of that person or of that group of people? better? To what extent can we you know, help that person to achieve what they want to achieve? You know, that to me is, is a key characteristic of innovation is the human centricity. Right. You know, we're doing this to help right. a person or a group of people. That's a really good observation. Right? I think sometimes when people think about innovation, they think about the technology as the end, right? Yes. But, but it's really the means. It's, it's the means, that's yeah, right. Yeah. You know, when we basically go on these innovation journeys, the last thing we think about yeah. is the technology, right? The first thing we think about is how might we change? What might we do to you know, make a situation more sure. desirable, yeah. better? And well, then we talk about you know, the technology. That and we there's kind use. of a domino effect, right? Because if you think about the person that you want to help improve whatever it is, they're supposed to do or trying to do, presumably that person being more successful is going to help somebody else, right? Like there's a, a domino effect of this innovation helps people, you know, kind of like two or three steps removed because everything gets better. Yes. The way. Okay. So we know that a lot of companies, I mean, there's a lot of Everybody knows they need to innovate. There's a lot of opinions about it. I've heard people say big companies don't innovate, right? Not surprisingly, the people who said that were from small companies. You know, I've heard people from big companies say, well, small companies may be able to innovate, but they can't really execute. And so what's the point of executing, of innovating if you can't execute? And when we were talking earlier, you mentioned something 
you know, more cultural, right, related to innovation, like a culture. And, you know, we, we always have this, I mean, for years, we've always said, you know, it's not the, pe- it's not the technology that's the, the challenge, it's the people, things like that. So what about the culture when you go into a place or even at Avanade? What's, what does an innovation culture look like? It's an interesting question. You're picking up an interesting point in terms of, you know, companies being innovative. I would stipulate that no company is innovative. Yeah, okay, right. But people are innovative, right? And so when we talk about culture, you know, the culture of innovation is giving people room to exercise that innate innovative capability that every one of us has. We are all innovators right. at heart, right? That's how we got where we are. That's how we survived, you know, millions of years of evolution and ended up where we are because we are innately innovative. Right. And given, given room and giving time, we will innovate. So then the question is, how can we facilitate not, that? Not stop it happening, right? Is really what you want yes. to do is, is kind of what you're saying is innovation is a natural force. And what we really need to do as an organization is just not prevent it. That's right. And it's interesting that you're, when you think about the culture in the Western world in terms of business, it's very linear, right? We see a problem and we want to solve the problem. And so in order to solve the problem, we go from A to B. Mm-hmm. And right. detours are not allowed. Yes. Right? Detours are discouraged because we want to be as efficient as we can. Well... The problem with innovation is it hardly ever works that linear. Right. Particularly early on when you're trying to ideate on how you might address a certain problem domain, there's a lot of squiggling going on, a brownie in motion. You, you know, you're trying things out, you're testing things, you see what might work, what might not work, you're trying to rule things out. All of this stuff obviously happens fairly early on in the innovation cycle, happens fairly quickly. You want it to happen quickly. You want to, you know, rule out the stuff that might not work right. early on. But you might also want to, you want to give yourself that freedom, the capability to to diverge, to think broadly and to look at things, you know, from angles that maybe you haven't considered before. Because yeah. that's what might right. spawn right. a new idea on how to approach a certain problem. And so we are not rewarded in the Western culture for that type of approach, we're not rewarded to fail, we are rewarded to succeed. And then that's a, that's a basic differentiator. If you look at some of these companies that are considered as innovation leaders, if you look at Amazon, for example, where you have these programs where you, know, you are encouraged to try things out, success is not necessarily in these situations what matters. It's that willingness to try something new, right? right? To engage in that, in that effort, to be uncomfortable to get comfortable with being uncomfortable to an extent, right? Yeah. Try new things. And you're right. It's not, it's not part of our culture, partially because most people work in an environment where, you know, the financials are sort of the governing factor, right? And nobody wants to, wants to pay for not a product or for, for somebody who's not producing, That's right. right? So, you know, and yet all the great inventions of the world probably happened that way, right? I mean, like guys like Thomas Edison would not have invented what he did had he had like some venture capitalists like standing behind him going, when are you going to get it right? When are you going to get it right? When are you going to get it right? Right. He, so he had, he had the, because of the, you know, he had the freedom to find whatever it was, 5,000 ways to not invent a light mm-hmm. bulb before he got the right. So how do you bring that? You know, we live in a very, you know, most people work in very economically aware environments where people are on the hook for dollars, whether that be, you know, dollars spent externally or internally. So bringing that cult, bringing that exactly what you described, that nonlinear approach is tough, right? How, did, how does a company do that? Well, I can tell you some of the ways that we're approaching it is when we, you know, look at some of the clients that we're working with in, in that space, you know, we have a certain book of business with those clients, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, will, we will take a part of that book of business and invest it back into some of these initiatives that right now, you know, might not be economically justifiable to do. But right. we think there's opportunity there to explore, to short thought leadership, to develop new approaches and bring those to the table, right? So it's an investment. Yeah. And we look at it as an investment. And you know, you show that works a couple of times, you know, your clients take notice. Yeah, yeah. And they think of it as well, you know, how can we, you know, invest like this? Yeah. But to your point, it's an interesting story that I have. Okay. Uh, where I've seen exactly that that scenario that you're describing. I was working, I was last year, I was working with a company that was trying to develop a large asset in the developing world. And we're going out and actually, you know, in in the in the bid documents for the for the construction for the EPCs. 
they actually brought in, we want, we want to work with an EPC who embraces digital innovation and, you know, and you know, all of this good stuff. And so it's great. So we, we got engaged, we partnered up with an EPC, uh, got engaged into the discovery on this, and we were bringing forward some proposals on how we might use innovation to improve, for example, worksite management for, for worksite of 20,000, improve sure. mustering processes, you know, bring in, you know, location tracking, improve site access, medical screening, you know, all of these things, all right? right yeah. All of this stuff. It was good. It was well received. But then, obviously, there's a price tag yeah. that comes with that stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. As you might imagine. And so, when we came around and to talk about the project cost and how digital innovation impacts the overall pricing of the project, it actually wasn't, if you look at the overall pricing of the project, it wasn't that much. It was 2 3%, but it was a big project. So, you know, and the owner operator then, you know, said, you know, all of a sudden, you know what? We don't think we want to pay for that. We want it, but we think that investing in these technologies makes the EPC so much more efficient that they're going to be more competitive on future projects. So we think that the EPC should yeah. carry that that burden. Yeah, and so you yeah. know, think about that, right? So you're asking your EPC to come in. The EPC, they know exactly what they are doing. Yeah, And they're yeah. experts in that stuff, right? right? So by asking them to do things differently, you're asking them to essentially take a risk because now all of a sudden you're asking them to do things in a way that ultimately might be and, better, and but it's different. And right? the stakes are high, right? I mean, there's huge amounts of capital at Absolutely, yes. When you start tra- talking That's about right. changing the approach of these guys mm-hmm. for how they're putting a facility together. Or whatever That's right. Is, and right. So now you're saying as the owner operator, I want you to do this. I want you to be digitally innovative, but I don't want to pay for that. Yeah. I, I think gonna, you should pay for that, right? Because you're going to get the benefit from other people. That's right. So I think there's a, you know, if we truly want to have transformational change in the space, I think it, it, it requires the owner operators also to be willing to share the risk that comes with that. And yes, that does mean that there is investment necessary. Right, right. It's interesting because, well, you've been in the consulting business. I spent many years in the consulting business. We had that same, we used to have that same problem, right? Is you come in and you want to do a, a project for somebody and it didn't take them long to figure out that, hey, what you're doing here, you're probably going to use that somewhere else. So we want to pay less for it. You know, which sometimes there's a point to that, right? Okay, mm-hmm. well, maybe we need to figure out. But your point is that as soon as you start focusing on that, then you're really stopping. You're kind of you're you're kind of preventing the greater good that's going to happen, right? By investing in that innovation. Yeah, and the greater good concept—that's a very Eastern concept. It's not a concept that's very strong in the Western world. No, it's not. However, I do think it's starting. There are signs of it. Maybe not. Maybe they wouldn't use those words, but. There are signs in the oil and gas industry that there are kind of new levels of interest in collaborating across companies. We have projects like like the Open Subsurface Data Universe, yes. right? And we have things that, and we have, you know, it used to be that you had like certain consortiums and standards bodies in this industry and people got around and talked about stuff. Nothing ever came of it, right? Because ultimately nobody was really going to share anything or collaborate. And now we're starting to see some of that where there is some amount of working together to try to like benefit the industry as a whole because of the immense pressure that we're under now. So it's interesting you're mentioning that one one of the consortia that, that I'm interested in and that I'm following is blockchain for energy. Mm-hmm. Because I think multi-party systems are very interesting in terms of unlocking some hidden value that we have in supply chains. Supply chains tend to be, at this point in time, mm-hmm. bilateral constructs, right? I make a deal with you right. to deliver a certain product. That deal is between us, and I make a separate deal with that company over there, right? And so, you know, maybe I have my product that I have to deliver to you. Maybe you still have a certain quantity of that product on hand. Maybe it's a perishable. So giving you more probably is not actually really good for you, but right. you have to contract, you have to take it as opposed to this other guy. Maybe he, he needs yep, it and I yep. can't deliver it to them because I'm constrained. So we're looking at a lot of this stuff, you know, how can we use multi-party systems to unlock some of the hidden value in the supply chains, become That's more effective that yeah. way. But yeah. the problem I see is the, there's a lot of interest, right, in the industry around that. But it's, again, it is very hard right now to obtain funding for those type of initiatives. Yeah. Because it's a tough, and, you know, it's, it's a tough environment. But, but, well, it's ironic because if you look at what, what it takes to develop an offshore field, right, from the ground up and to operate it, that's probably one of the largest, most complex multi-party transactions that ever, you know, between multiple operators and EPCs and all the different, and the service companies. I mean, you know, there's like, I think sometimes people who are not 
in this industry imagine that an oil well gets drilled by a a particular company going out and drilling an oil well. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's not, you know, there's a lot of different parties involved in that. And so certainly would be a benefit, but you're right. It's hard. It's probably hard to get people to make that leap and invest in that like systematically, I would think. Yeah. And then that's what it's take. That's what it takes, right? You In, in order for these type of systems to be successful, it, it takes, you know, a wide industry adoption. Otherwise it's not going to work. You have to have you know, a minimal set of players to be able to pull these exchanges off. Well, when I, if there's a transaction just between you and, and me, then I know if I'm getting what I'm paying for because the transaction is just between you and me. And it's very easy for me to look at it and measure it, understand the value. But if it's a multi-party transaction where different people are bringing different things to the party and different people are getting things out of it, then it becomes harder for me to, to know whether everybody's paying their fair share. It's like NATO, right? Like, is everybody paying their fair share or not? We don't really know. Like, we hear what people say, but it becomes much more complicated. On the other hand, though, what excites me about these type of systems, right, the multi-party systems, is that, let, let's say, for example, we lay some pipe, right? And, you know, I acquire the pipe from various different vendors, mm -hmm. right? So now as I put that pipe in, it's not a problem. I put it down, build my pipeline, it's all good. Now, one of my vendors discovers they have... You know, maybe they had a material failure mm -hmm. in, in a certain run. And they recall, you know, sure. that they recall that particular batch right. of pipe. Right? It's already in the ground. How do, <laughs> how, how, do I, how do I know where to dig? Yeah. How do I know which one, which one to change out? Because, right. you know, the promise that these multi-party systems provide to us is the ability of traceability through the entire supply chain, right? right. So I know exactly where a piece of product comes from. I know exactly where it goes. I know the chain of custody. So yeah. if there's a recall happening, I can trace that. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. And I know exactly where I have to dig, right? Because not only, not only did I track where I got that equipment from, I also tracked who I gave it to in terms of putting it into the ground. I know where they digged. Right. They put it in the ground, they recorded when it went down, they scanned it, right? So I know where it is, I know where to dig. So I can, you know, I can be a lot more efficient and I can do I can do things now that I couldn't do before in terms of operating safely and making sure that my systems are, you know, operating. Yeah, it's, yeah. So it's funny because we um just recently we did an episode about this with our friends at Data Gumbo who are right here. Yes. Andrew Bruce is mm -hmm. right right down the hall here in this very same building at the fabulous Canon on the west side of Houston. And <laughs> You know, they're using blockchain to yes. do that, right? And it's it's fascinating. It's And you can immediately see the value, right? And I asked him, okay, but like, do people look at you kind of funny and go, uh, blockchain, I'm not really sure, right? Because there's all this skepticism about certain buzzwords and technologies and things. And he said, yeah, we do have to overcome that. But when they see the results, that's when, right, they become, they become. Right. And it's obviously, it's also important to notice that, you know, when we talk about that's why I did not mention the word blockchain. <laughs> exactly. And I use right, multi-party exactly. systems right? Exactly. Right. for because, that exact reason. Right. Because there's a fundamental difference yeah. between using a blockchain or distributed ledger for this type of activity, which generally is not going to be a public blockchain like you have with, with Bitcoin. Right. right. right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's a different thing. Right. Right. So it, I, I don't like to You're compare right. exactly. because of that, that preconceived idea. Okay. I want to shift gears for a second because before we start getting to running out of time, I want to ask about something, mm -hmm. and it's that on your LinkedIn photo, there is a picture of you with a bright orange hard hat and some sort of like futuristic looking safety. Oh glasses. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're actually holding your hand up in there like you're waiting for the hammer there in that in that photo. So you know, you want to know what's on there? What is that? What is what what's happening in that photo? Oh, interesting question. So what you're looking at is uh, that's a HoloLens. Um, okay. So it's a piece of technology that falls in the extended reality family. So what it allows you to do is it allows you to see things that are not really there. What it does is well, it... Like whiskey does that too, but well, I don't yeah. know if... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what, this is a bit more data-driven. Okay. So what the HoloLens allows you to do is it allows you to overlay digital constructs on reality, right? So imagine it like this. Think you walk through a facility, you look at the pipes up here on the ceiling, mm -hmm. and you know there's all of a sudden an arrow appearing, sure. pointing to the pipe saying, right. hey, there's water in there, and it's, it's yeehaw, right? Right, right? So it's... it's like the Terminator. Like the Terminator, yeah, yes. Yeah. So it's a Google Glass taken to the extreme, I guess. Yeah. So we're using that particular technology actually mostly right now in, in the training mm -hmm. rooms, training facilities to teach people how to interact and operate on equipment because we can, you know, obviously 
overlay the equipment with interesting pointers and explanations and show you how to do a certain thing. Interesting. So these these devices are very interesting. You know, RealWare has a similar piece of technology that comes down like in front of your eye. And there's, of course, the, the fully immersive headsets. What's interesting is we've seen a lot of increased interest in those type of approaches now with the pandemic. Sure. Yeah, because, you know, we want to reduce the number of people in the field. Right. And so if you think about it, you have a junior operator, perhaps, mm-hmm. it's in the field, and the operator has a question, right? How can you provide the best support for that person? Well, what if you could, in yeah. fact, not only see what that person sees, I mean, you can do that with an iPhone, but right. what, could, what if you could actually annotate yeah. his environment Yeah, yeah. That's so that you can basically point to that valve right and show him turn that to the left yeah so another thing that comes up a lot of times in these conversations is you know we've been talking for a long time about the great crew change and the previous generation that has all the knowledge and the new generation coming that doesn't have that those years of experience there's kind of a gap between them but there's also not just a knowledge gap but there is a gap in terms of how they expect to interact with their world, right? Yes, so, very much so. And so companies are struggling with this. Like, how do we give, I used to, there was a guy that I, I used to work with sometimes at Chevron and he was sort of in, let's just say my age group. And he used to refer to these newer employees as the Googlers, right? And he was like, I, I don't know how to, really, I don't know how to give them the experience that they're looking for when they come to work. And that's, that's the thing. So what you're describing actually, besides the whole, COVID thing and getting people out of the field, it's not practical to send a seasoned veteran around with a newer person everywhere they go, right? But if you could take that knowledge from a small group of people and get it out to a much larger group of people who are out there in the field working, right. I mean, that's that's amazing. And so, yeah, we see that- In of, real time, right? Not yes. in a reference manual, but like, no, this is, this is time, what yes. you're looking at and you need to, see that little thing over there where it's hanging, you need to look at that, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we see that emergence of these connected remote operating centers where you have a lot of the guys who have that field experience, you know, maybe they were ready to retire and maybe saying, hey, look, don't retire just yet. Just come work in this remote operating center for yeah, a year yeah. or two. Help, help the new guys, right? Because they've been saying they were going to retire for a long time and they keep coming back as consultants and contractors and things oh, like that. Oh, all the time, right? yeah. So, well, how yeah, could you not? Yeah, it's a it's, great pay. It, it, <laughs> right, because they can't live without us. So that's cool. So that was a, so you were, I think you were actually giving a presentation when you, in that photo, right? It, yeah, it was a conference. I was, yeah. uh, I was it talking about- It looked like about, you had a little appell. So I, I gather that you weren't standing in the middle of, you know, like a refinery or something. No, not, not on this one. No, I was, uh, that was the, there was IoT in oil and gas about a year oh, okay, ago. Okay, cool. So you actually got up there with the, with yeah. the, with the whole, thing and very cool so that actually all right so i'm gonna jump over so this is all about innovation right but there was another thing that i wanted to touch on which i know that you're involved with and i think maybe you know kind of blends into that which is this whole digital twin thing that's going on right because there's this concept of like like human digital twins right like having people equipped with that sort of stuff and then creating and i don't even not sure i even understand what this is but like this is a thing yeah. right so explain that what is that all about so actually that that whole human digital twin i've been working on that for a couple of years we started doing that actually not in oil and gas but in mining so mining is obviously a very Same it's op- an adjacent industry right yes problems, right? what we had is we looked at mining, and mining is one of the industries that still has the highest deadly accident rates. And if you think about it, it's not surprising. Yeah. These mines are really big. There are ledges. There's big equipment driving around. It's dark. It's raining. You're working 12-hour shifts. You get tired. You doze off. You mm-hmm. fall down one of these ledges with your with your earth mover. You're pretty much dead. Yeah, yeah. and that's not a good outcome. Not that's an outcome not. we want, right? So, so we looked at you know how might we how might we prevent that from happening, and we took a book. Uh, we took a page out of uh, the sports medicine book. You know, sports medicine they've done you know biometric sensors for a long time to to figure out how to get your body operate at an optimum. So we adopted some similar things, and we uh, what we what we did is we did that garment. It was kind of a dry fit garment that had sensors, you know, waved in, and you would put it on before your shift, and it would monitor your your heart rate, mm-hmm. uh, your breathing, your temperature, you know, a couple of other things. We had uh, air quality sensors in the cabs to measure exposure to particulates. Cumulative over time, right, right. And so based on that, we were able to create a model 
of fatigue that evolved and got tailored to the particular operator over time. Mm, mm, and okay. so based on that fatigue model, we could actually see, and the, the operator could see, you know, the, the fatigue state. And when the fatigue state reaches a certain point, that operator would get an alert. Right. And gets, uh, they would get a work order issued to take a break. You know, now with COVID, the thing is that when we operate facilities, they need to be supervised. And so we need people there. We need operators there to operate those facilities. So it's fine for us in the office jobs to say, well, we just work from home, right? You can't afford yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So how do we keep our people that have to operate in these environments safe? And one of the things, of course, to do is to reduce the necessity of having people to be there. So one thing that we were asking is, well, how would it be? I mean, we're using robots to walk the aisles in supermarkets to count what's on the shelves and things like that. You know, can we just have them do the rounds like an operator would? Not to actually even do anything smart, but just be remote eyes and ears. Yeah. Going back to that remote operating center, right? Right, right, right. Can I, you know, can I do something like put a 3D camera on top of a robot, put a mic on it? Yeah. And just listen in. Because, you know, a lot of times an operator walks into a room, they hear something, they see something, and they yep. know something's up. Right, right. right. It's something that's that simple. Yeah. And, you know, why can't we do that with, with something simple as a robot? And, you know, we've, we've used robots a lot over the years here. And we see actually, and I have a talk on this one. I did one on one of these HR conferences where we talked about that the workforce of the future, right, which is going to be a combination of a robot workforce, both physical and right. and software robots. Yeah, so there, I mean, there's a lot humans. of studies being done on this, right? Like, yeah. what happens when you start putting humans and, and robots together working in similar? And I think when we were when we were talking earlier, you mentioned something about like HR, HR right? for like robots, HR for robots, <laughs> which which sounds a little bit like. George Jetson and his robot maid who was never quite happy with him, right? But what is the, what does this mean, HR for Well, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting, right? So we have, of course, had information technology for a while. Now with the advent of IoT, we see operation technology, which deals with right. you know, how do I keep my sensors all secure right. and how do I keep their firmware up to date? Well, the robot technology or HR for robots is the same <laughs> thing for, for robots. If you think about a robot, really it's nothing else but a server. Sure. On wheels, yeah, yeah, with arms, yeah. So now think about that, and then, you know, if you want to get your CIO really sweating, you kind of put that picture in his yeah. or her head, <laughs> right? Because you know these things are connected to our networks. They are they, yeah. they have paths into our data. So the attack surfaces that you have now are not just larger because you have these robots. They're also now mobile because right. they're moving around. So if somebody abducts my robot, right? That's right. It's not a matter of just, you know, taking a person and convincing him to give me the password to the mainframe, right? You can actually like take a robot and now you have an You can hijack point. it. You that's right. Point, right? Yeah. That's right. So interesting. So I have these, you know, these robots in the field. I have to service them. I have to update their firmware. I have to make sure they are they are safe. I also have to monitor how they interact with humans. Yeah. Particularly, I mean, we, we are used to robots in assembly lines, but it's a different thing, right? These robots yeah. in assembly lines, they are caged in. There's no interface right. between the robot and the human. When we talk about autonomic robots, there is a human robot interface. Yeah. They are working in the same space with humans. They move around. So we have to be, you know, we have to make sure that we understand how they interact. Right. And there have been some, you know, scary and unfortunate stories already, right, where things haven't haven't gone well in those situations. So not don't touch the robot. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't touch, don't the, touch robot. the robot. <laughs> so this is great stuff. I think so I think that whoever it was in their in the review they left that they said they wished the show was longer. I think we might be delivering on that on that right now. Although it's hard to know since my recorder shut off and we restarted. Right, that's all right. But I think we're probably getting a little long on time here. I think what we need to do, so we, we covered a lot of ground. We hit a lot of different topics there, all related to innovation. I think maybe it'd be great to come back and do one or two more episodes where we dive into one of those a little bit more. I'd love to. But I think an interesting part of this is that you work for a very large consulting firm, right? And this is your job. So, so Avanade is invest, and you're not the only one. And Avanade is investing in people. So a company that basically makes its money by going out and doing stuff for other people, they're investing in people like you to like, what's the mission? You obviously know a lot about. I'm going to clean this up because it's a family show, but you know an awful lot about <laughs> about all these different aspects of technology and innovation. So, what's the mission for you? Why did Avanade say we need we need Thor and his friends to go do this? 
Well, let's, okay, let's take a step back maybe. The way I'd like to start is, for those of you who are not familiar with who Avanade is, because sometimes this is one of the best kept secrets, we are a joint venture between Microsoft and Accenture. Right. Bringing together Microsoft's technology and Accenture's subject matter expertise. That, that's kind of, the, that's the charter. That's the opus, modus operandi. And we are missioned to be the leading digital innovator on the Microsoft platform. That's our mission. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean, leading digital innovator? Well, for us, it means we have to identify and realize those outcomes that, makes, that make people's lives better. Right. Preferably using Microsoft technology. Preferably, right. Preferably. Yeah. And so, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. to facilitate this, you have to create a certain cultural footprint. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's really my job. My job and the job of my team, and there, there are 17 of me across the world. So we have one in each region of me. And we're not supposed to innovate. My teammates innovate the whole day. That's what they do. That's what Avana does for a living, right, innovating. Right, right. So my job is to constantly look at how can I help them to be more innovative? What can I do right, to right. create that culture that allows us to explore, to experiment, sure. to try, to broaden out? And then conversely, from the consulting perspective, how can I help my clients? Yeah, I was just going to say, to you, can't, you, can't, you can't do it. You can't innovate in a vacuum. You can't have a bunch of Avana people just coming up with stuff, right? You have to have it. You need to have, you work together with your clients. And so your clients need to have that same mm-hmm. frame of mind about innovating. And so you have to cultivate that. That's right. And sometimes and, it's really tricky, yeah. right? Because a lot of our clients are used to very traditional models when it comes to engaging technology firms, right? Yeah, it's staff sure. org. You know, you bring your people on to our to our team. We give them accounts. We bring them on that work and their their workforce. Or even well. or even project based consulting, where, yes. where it's like I want to know every specific deliverable mm-hmm. and how much is it going to cost and when am I going to get it right? Yes. This is why we. I remember I was in consulting back in the days when we were trying to figure out how to marry agile with a consulting engagement structure and. It's very hard. It took me a while. And, and we figured out how to do it eventually, but it was very, you know, I, I want to know what am I going to get, when am I going to get it, and how much is it going to cost, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. innovation doesn't really work. No, it doesn't. It does not work that linearly, unfortunately. And the other aspect, of course, is we, we want to be innovative. And, and I do this with my clients when I do innovation workshops and ideation workshops. The best innovative results I've seen is when you bring people with different viewpoints together. Right, diversity of experience, diversity of background, because that helps you right. see solutions yeah. that otherwise you wouldn't have you wouldn't, you wouldn't right, have seen, right. right? And sometimes solutions that are so simple it boggles the mind. Sure, right? yeah, because yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we have yeah, our blinders yeah. on, and it helps us take the blinders off, right? So that is one of the things that I'm that I'm missioned with is to create that culture of innovation internally, and then also, of course, to show what we call the art of the possible. Mm, you know, right, right. you know, we talk about these outcomes, but let's let's make them let's make it tangible. Yeah, right. Yeah. How does this look like? How might it look like right. if I have you know a worksite where when I have a digital twin of a crane and I know where everybody is, I can eliminate any kind of load-related accidents or incidents. Right? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that I ask a lot of times. So we have a lot of people that come on the show who are maybe from some smaller, younger tech companies and, you know, they kind of want the world to know what they're doing and they have, and I've talked with people like this in my, in my other, other aspect of my professional life. And a lot of times people are very good at articulating what the thing does. But when I ask the question, okay, tell me about, so I bought it, I have it, I'm using it, (laughs) right? Like. Tell me about whose life gets changed. So if a company, if a manager walks out and says, guess what, everybody? We just bought, good news, we just bought XYZ from so-and-so. Okay, so whose life changes? How does it change? And what does it look like after they have this thing compared to what they were doing, what their life looked like before? And surprisingly, that's one of the toughest questions for people to answer sometimes because they haven't imagined the whole like the whole continuum, right? Mm-hmm. Of So when you say the art of the possible, like this is how it works today. This is how people do their work. We can change that. Sometimes we're very focused on the piece of technology that's doing a very specific thing and not the whole continuum of how people experience it. That's right. And there's an interesting corollary on that one. There's a report that has been published by Accenture and I have it on my LinkedIn in the next couple of days, but it's looking at oil and gas and 
digital transformation programs in oil and gas. And the takeaway from the report was that you know every major company that's doing anything in oil and gas, may that be operators, owners, right. EPCs, service providers, they all have a digital transformation program. Right. And almost nobody's accomplishing anything. Well, not, not, not almost nobody, <laughs> or, but the interesting thing is, yeah, about 30% Okay. Have said that. That's more seen, than I would have thought. Actually, uh, that, that's they, probably an uptick in the last. <laughs> that's an uptick in the last yeah year. So. Yes. Yes. So there's there's good there are good results in, yeah, in, in that's areas, good. but yeah, the yeah. question then to me becomes: those other sixty percent that do not see that return right. from digital transformation investment, what's different, right? And so that report looks at that, and one of the main findings about the differences between the firms that are successfully in creating return of investments of their digital transformation programs versus the ones that don't, is the ones that do not look as the digital transformation as the end, but just the enabler. And we look at just what you said, imagining how work could be done differently, how right. culture could change, how approaches could change. Yeah, yeah. Those are the ones that are successful. Because it's really, it's not just bringing the technology and it's not just about databases and web services and microservices and robotics. It's about how do we bring these to the table to achieve an outcome? And what yes. else do we need to do? Because it's not just technology. What do we have to do in terms of culture? What do we have to do in terms of right. operating processes to change our organization to create these outcomes? Yeah, and, that, and those are things are non-trivial. They're, those are much no, more compl- complex than the... In fact, I was... So I read something recently. I can't remember whether it was McKinsey or Deloitte who said, you know, it was kind of an update to, you know, the kind of the view of how things are going with digital transformation in energy and oil and gas. And what they said was that point solutions are not, a lot of people are focusing on adopting particular pieces of technology or developing something for point solutions. And those are not transforming the business because, and they had a very nice explanation about having to kind of reimagine whole workflows, just bringing a point solution into a particular task is maybe improving a particular task, but it's not transforming businesses mm-hmm. and reimagining the whole thing is really the key, which of course, like if I'm, you know, it's it's fine for those of us who talk about these things to sit around and say that, but if, if I'm a person on the ground with a team and a budget and everything, and I think, well, you know, it's been hard enough for me to just try to get the money and the time to implement this one this thing. Was, now you I, want me to reimagine yeah. a whole workflow, right? So it's an interesting thing, but you bring it up is, and there's a tool I use very frequently to, to, work, to work this particular aspect, and it's called the Innovation Ambition Matrix. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it, it helps you understand how the activities that you are doing or about to do, might that be projects or whatever, right? right? How they enable innovation and what type of innovation they enable, because there are different types of innovation, right? If, you, if you're trying to innovate in your core space, in your core capabilities, trying to improve the results that you're producing for your existing core constituency, the kind of your existing customers, you're working in the core space, right? It's not going to be transformational, it's going to be incremental. Mm, right. As you add new products, right. Or as you reach entirely new constituencies, you're going to be going to adjacent and then ultimately transformational. Yeah, yeah. But you know, again, it's understanding if, if your ambition is to be a transformative innovator while implementing teams is not going to do it. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. exactly. So, yeah. so you, you got to understand, and then that's always where it starts when you talk about innovation program. What am I after? Do I want to be a disruptor in the market? Do I want to just basically make sure that what I'm doing is not is not getting obsolete? What is it that I want yeah. out of my innovation program, right? And that then drives and you have to right and you, right just implementing a particular technology doesn't doesn't get it done. So it's great that I think to kind of wrap it up, it's encouraging to see this culture, right? This cultural change, this shift, this innovation philosophy that really I think is key. Going back to your point about the people. People are, have digital initiatives, they have roadmaps, they have activities, but the question is, are they realizing the business value that justify those things in the first place? And this is a big piece of it, I think. And so it's, yeah, good, it's good that people are doing that. So I think, I think we 
kept so whoever wished for the show to be longer i think we did that but this was really fascinating stuff one last plug i have i I think you know we talk about outcomes a lot one of the outcomes that we're looking for at the moment is you know what we want to do is help change the perception that the rest of the country has about energy as being that that terrible polluting business Mm. because it's not right so we have an event coming up the new year on methane Okay, clean great. up. Yeah. And I think we're going to be back here as well. Will Mosley is going to be joining you in oh, a yeah. year right, to, right, to talk right. about that. But it's interesting. It's the use of satellite technology, image recognition, ground-based flyer to essentially identify and prevent and resolve methane leaks and methane emissions. It's very interesting. So yeah. if you're interested, go look at my LinkedIn. I'm posting the invite there. And yeah, we'll hope to see you there. We'll find it. Okay. Yeah, we'll put that. So we'll put your LinkedIn link in the show notes, as well as anything else that you give me. Then we'll, we'll put all that in the show notes so people know how to find out and learn more and things like that. A couple of more. So thank you again. And just a couple more things to mention before we wrap this up. And that is one, that our street team, the OGGN street team, which is led by the noble and fearless Warren Spiewak is out there. In fact, I think there's a street team thing going on right now that I'm supposed to be part of. So hopefully Warren is not mad at me yet. I will make it in there. But the street team is a great way to just get involved with OGGN, get involved in the industry and have some fun. They're not really out there on the real streets yet, but they're, you know, with everything that's going on this year, but they're on the the virtual streets and they're doing some cool stuff. I think you also get a nice hat. I, I don't know if that's true. I might've just made that up. Also, I want to thank, I mentioned them a couple of times today, our editor, Emin Fikic, who is in the faraway land of Bosnia, and he does a fantastic job of putting this stuff together. This one's going to be a challenge for him. And also our producer, Savannah Wilson, who actually makes sure that everybody gets to hear these episodes. And finally, Cognite, our sponsor. Cognite is doing some great things with, you may be familiar with them, but they're doing some Really cool stuff with industrial data and contextualizing it and making it so that people and humans and machines can all use it. Cognite.as is their website. So check them out. That will do it for today. I want to harken back to what I said earlier, or I don't know, this might have been dropped out in when the recorder went out, but I was talking about this industry having technology for a long time. And so when you're when your friends and relatives give you a hard time about oil and gas being behind the times, just give them a little history lesson and tell them that we were tech before tech was cool. And here are the events on deck. Happy New Year, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for January 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, the OCI East Houston Chapter Luncheon at the Monument Inn on the 5th, and the Houston Chapter Energy API Meeting at the Petroleum Club on the 14th. The only online event we have this month is the Prefab Connect from the 26th to the 29th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for January. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.